Hello and welcome to the Emotional Work Podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and this episode is a special one because it's been a year, unbelievably, listeners, it's been 12 months of the Emotional Work Podcast and I began my podcast journey uh, yeah, a year ago, last May, with a kind of reflection from me about why I was doing the podcast and what it was about and where it was coming from and then about halfway through the year I did another kind of uh, pause and reflection uh, and in this episode you're going to get to hear a more from me as well um so i'm sorry about that but you that's the thems are the breaks as the listeners you don't get to control what you get in your ears i, I get the gift of giving that to you so today yeah you're going to get to hear more from me and i know that today's guest is um a mix of excited and um i guess a little bit nervous and curious about how it's going to go because um yeah today's guest has no idea what's coming really they've got they've uh, they've done a little bit of prep but um they're going to have to give away control uh, and i'm not sure how our guest feels about um about giving away control so yeah it's going to be um it's going to be an interesting one today i'm not sure um, <coughs> excuse me excuse me is that that is phil isn't uh, it hello hello hello, hello. What, what, what do you think you're doing i am i'm on my opening monologue well, fair listener, please do not adjust your set. This is Mark Gilroy. I'm going to be your guest host for the podcast today. And as Phil's just been um, suggesting, the reason for this is because we're, the podcast itself is about to turn a year old. And of course, for the last year, we've been listening to one person's voice for the last roughly two weeks. And we never really get to hear from him in some detail. So he usually asks the questions. This time, that's going to be me. Phil's going to be giving some answers. So... Let's get him back and into Hello. the guest seat. Hello. It's Hello. the emotion geek himself, Phil Wilcox. Hey, how you doing? Welcome oh. to the... No, I can't say that because... No. No, no. <laughs> close, close. Close. Oh, you know what? It's nice to have your voice in my ears. You have such a lovely radio voice. <laughs> and there's no kind of, You know, I know there's like implicature around that, around that you've got, a, you know, no face for radio gags are coming. You do have a wonderful... Um, you do have a wonderful radio voice, Mr. Gilroy. That is very kind of you, sir. Very kind of you, sir. And as we both know, you have a wonderful singing voice too. Absolutely, yes. Ha- having duetted with, uh, in the past. <laughs> and we'll put a link to that. No, as I said, as we, <laughs> and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, everybody. We'll put a link to the duet in the show notes. <laughs> so in this podcast, we're going to be doing a review, a year in review of what's been going on, hopefully finding out a little bit more about your story, about some of the conversations and the journey that's got us to this place so far and maybe looking at what's coming in the future but um, before we get started back in episode five you had the wonderful Georgie announcing all as a guest and you guys talked about disrupting the standard network type conversations of what do you do and she had some brilliant unexpected questions and I know you've kept that as a bit of a theme I do and I love it I, I always find it a fascinating kind of segue into the into the podcast it works really well, I think. It works really well. And, I, and I've since used them at many, uh, many networking-type conversations has been met with um, a mixtures of delight, fear, shock, surprise, but mainly um, uh, a smile, which is always good. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, was, I was, just before you do, I was reading a, a post from her on Facebook yesterday, um, and she got on a train, <clears throat> and she went to put her bag down, um, and she put her bag on someone's toes, and the person said, um, oh, don't worry, it didn't hurt. And she went, oh, next time I'll try harder. Um, and then prompt, mm. and then proceeded to have a, a wonderful kind of four or five minute conversation in between tube stops um, <laughs> on, on, on that basis. So I, I, I love the way she goes about just 
because that's just not something you would say, is it? You know, if you you accidentally put your bag on someone's <laughs> foot, they say, "Oh, don't worry, I didn't hurt," and you go, "Sorry, sorry, sorry." And no, she goes with, oh, "I'll try harder next time." I love that. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that story. Are you ready for an unexpected question? I am. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes, I am. Okay. So you know, I'm into my tech, so I thought we'd do a tech theme question. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in your tech virtual world, we can do control copy, control and C to copy, control yeah, okay. and Z to undo. But if you could do one of those in real life, would you rather be able to copy and paste in real life or undo in real life? Would I rather copy and paste or undo? <sighs> So, I don't know if I actually I don't think I'd like either of them. Um, but you give me a forced choice, so I in, in which case I will say copy and paste, because um, for me when I think about undo, then I think about um, like a regret or a mistake, um, and and I have a bit of a mantra at the moment, which is that. Um, I never regret any choice that you made. Only regret the decision you used. Sorry, only so never regret a, a choice that you made. Only regret the information you used if it was flawed. Mm. So if if you use flawed information to make the decision, then regret using that information don't regret the decision mm. and, and and learn from the flaw in your thinking or the flaw in the data or the flaw in the reasoning don't um regret the decision because one of the worst things i think is to go through life stuck in a state of um stuckness where you're not making any decisions so for me it's about make a decision and then if you if you regret the outcome then reflect on the data that you use to make the decision. Don't don't regret the decision. Don't don't try and undo what you did. Learn from the data or the information or the the way that you reached your conclusions that, that informs your decision. Don't regret the decision because making decisions is is um, is the you know, making a decision is much much better than not making a decision. Um, and if you're going to have regret, regret the reasons that you made it or the data that you used. Don't regret the decision itself. I love that. I love that. And, and you can see kind of tracking back, that's the sort of thinking that is, is why we as a species, we don't sort of live in, live in caves scared of the world anymore because at some point yeah, we have yeah. to make a decision that might fail, that might result in something we're, that we're not particularly happy with, but we can learn from it and we can move forward and we can try again. Yeah, absolutely. And what about for you? What would, you, what would be your... Um... Ooh, I, I, I can see merit in both. I can see merit in both, the copy and paste and undo, but I think um, I'm going to go with the copy and paste. I think okay. there are so many sort of experiences and uh, things that you come across in life that are just so fleeting, whether it's just a little moment between two people or whether it's something that you observe other, between others. And it would be so great to be able to replicate that little little moments of magic. Um, so, yeah, I I, um, 
I do a lot of work in, in the world of sort of team development and teamwork. Yeah, and yeah. and you, every now and again, you come across these little magic teams that there's just something within them. And they're often there just for a little short time, um, maybe a, a week or so, or, or a couple of days of absolute optimum working. And if you could copy and paste that and replicate it, um, gosh, uh, what, what could be achieved? Um, on, a, on a more um, superficial note, I, yeah, go on. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I very much enjoy uh, wine, but I, <laughs> I, I get extreme anxiety about the fact that very often, if you open a bottle of wine, even if you bought the same, you know, the same type of wine, you're never going to get exactly the same one again. <laughs> and really? the idea that you could, okay. you could, you could put something and, and, and uh, you know, and have that exact same experience, taste, etc. Yeah, I, I, I like that. If I could hit copy and paste on, on a bottle of wine, happy days. Yeah, see, I, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. I thought you were going to go, if I could hit copy and paste on the time I drank a bottle of wine and I wasn't hungover, that would be great. <laughs> that's, where, that's, where, that's where I thought, that's where my mind went, anyway. Unfortunately, that has never happened, which tells you about my wine consumption habits. Um, <laughs> okay, so shall we, um, shall we get started? Yeah, come on. Yeah, so this is a, a year in review. Now, you did do a little mini-review around episode 13, where, where you sort of took stock and, and looked at where you'd come from so far and, and, and what had been going on, and that you were going to take a bit of time off at that stage in the podcast. Yeah. Um, you've come quite a bit, quite a way since then. Um, let's start off, How's, how does it feel to be a year in? Uh, it feels really good, I'm, and it's it continues to be something that that brings me joy and i remember in that episode i talked about how or was it in episode 14 i can't remember which one it was um it's either my yeah it was either that it was either 13 or 14 i talked about um how was it in my blog or at some point around that time of, of of the year last year i talked about how how doing the podcast brings me joy and there was there was some yeah there was stuff happening with me being ill and um, the impact that I was having on my kind of mood and my you know, mental health and stuff that just meant that it, I was grumpy a lot. Um, and doing the podcast meant, because um, I was in pain a lot. So being in pain a lot makes you grumpy a lot. Um, and, and and doing the podcast brought me, you know, I talked about how I continued to do it because it's, it was something I could A, do from home, B, didn't involve me traveling anywhere, C, brought me joy. Um, and, and that's still the case now. You know, so when I all of the conversations that I've had with all of the guests along the way, um, I, I just love doing them. And, and it's, it depends how you frame it. So is it because I'm nosy? Maybe. Um, or is it because I'm curious? Definitely. Um, so, you know, by my use of maybe and definitely, I've indicated which frame I prefer. But um, I, I really, really enjoy finding out more about people, about what, um, what makes them think about what makes them feel about how those two things kind of interact and, and, and overlap um, and and then I also get enjoyment from the the impact it has on others then so when mm. I get uh, tweets or messages or um, you know when I see shares from other people when they're when they're sharing the podcast and they're talking about how it might have resonated with them or how helpful they found it or how it got them thinking differently or how they want to listen to it you know multiple times because there was so much in there they couldn't grab hold of it first time round that sort of stuff um mm. yeah it makes me really happy as well because part of 
what I want to do, which is about shifting the, the narrative around emotion in the workplace, there's only so much I can do on my own. There's only so many conversations I can have. There's only so many businesses I can work with. There's only so many hours in the day. And and I really see the podcast for me as a, as a way of changing that narrative on a, on a broader scale, because I can have one conversation that can be listened to by 200 different people. Mm. Um, and, and that, you know, and if it resonates with only 10% of those, that tw- that's 20 people who are going, right, that, that's really got me thinking about either anxiety if they've listened to the one with Tony Jackson or mm. about um, humanising the workplace if they listen to episode 19 with Sarah Taylor or that's really got me thinking about how we interact with other people if they listen to episode 12 with Dawn Archer. You know, so th- th- if, if these different episodes are having a, an effect on people, Mm. And it is then shifting their thinking, which I don't know if it shifts their actions. Um, but, you know, I know their actions aren't going to change if, shift, if their thinking hasn't shifted. So if I shifted their thinking, there's a, there's a chance that their actions are going to change. And mm. if their actions are going to change, then there's a chance that that can be better for people in the workplace. And if I can feel confident that I am affecting people's thinking, then I will um, work with the fact that I believe that that will then change into action and that will then have a better impact on uh, on workplaces around the globe. Hmm. And was was that the original reason that started you thinking about producing your own podcast around shifting thinking and getting people changing their narratives? Yes, hmm. uh, in part, um, definitely. So it, when, when I did... So I spent a long time from... So 2013, I think, was the first time that I really properly dedicated some time to think about why am I doing what I'm doing? Yes, yeah, so I set my company up in 2011 um, and, 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 and I knew then that emotion was important to me. I knew then that um, you know, having a strong evidence base was, was important to me. I knew then that I wanted people to have an extraordinary experience um in the work they did with me but in i i can i i don't back then i didn't have a reason to do that i didn't have like a um a really clear idea of what that was mm. um and so the purpose as it sits now which is uh, i promise to make work better for everybody by placing emotion where it belongs at the heart of work um, and I and I do all of that to either enrich lives or to um, provide protection or reduce harm. So it's a bit of a long purpose, but I don't really care about that. You know, the, it, it covers all the all the key aspects of, of what I do. But that's that is my fifth version of my why. So in 2013, I started on um, I want to create happiness. That was what I wanted to do. That was my kind of raison d'etre. That was right. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to create happiness for people. Um, Then that kind of evolved into, I want to create conditions that allow happiness to flourish. Uh, And then, and then I got thinking about the, the credibility of, of happiness as an emotion in the workplace. And, and, And the more I thought about the, positive intent behind what I was trying to do actually if if there was a word that would better sit where happiness was it would be creating contentment because happiness for me is a is is used in in one word is used in two different ways so there's the momentary happiness which is 
the happiness that you feel when you when you experience something pleasurable, whether that be you see someone you haven't seen for a long time, you um, smell a smell that just reminds you of, of your past, you eat some amazing food, um, you you hear a joke, you know. So that happiness is that fleeting moment, that fleeting emotion of that momentary emotion of joy or happiness, um, and that happiness can be. Um, you know, you could be laughing at someone else's misfortune, but whatever it is, something that brings you pleasure. But happiness is also used to describe states of contentment, where where people are overall kind of happy with their lot. So, in the last ep- no, yeah, the last episode, the one came out this week. Monica Parker talks about how people can be massively engaged and hate the fact the toilets are dirty. Yes, um, and and that's a that's a good example of. Overall, that person is happy and content in their work and their workplace. Um, but there are things that they would love to change. They'd love it if the toilets were clean, you know. So, and, and likewise, I think there's an. And this is where I wanted to move away from it just being about happiness for me, because actually, to ha- to aspire for people to be only happy in the workplace, I think is a fool's errand. It's it's a it's a flawed um, aspiration to have because it's just rubbish really you you, mm. you know you you can't have an emotion that where people are only happy partly because as you and Suk talked about in your podcast on optimism and positivity that you did for Suk on his three good podcast um overbearing happiness if it taken to its extreme will mean that you'll take unnecessary risks you will ignore um uh, data that says that this is the wrong thing to do you will you know chase highs all of the time um so it, it's actually it could be uh, disadvantageous to individuals and workplaces to be perpetually happy um so that's where I, th- I thought right you know what i don't want it to be just about happiness actually this needs to be much more about all all of the emotions in the workplace and making making it okay to experience different emotions because emotions are fleeting. I think this is the bit that mm. that that I get frustrated by in that if I'm angry, so let's say I have what's called, you know, so what a, a researcher would call a flooding out moment, which is where the emotion gets to a point where um, my my sort of filters or my my ability to regulate my emotion is inhibited, and you will see, say. Um, uh, me being really angry so that could be me shouting it could be me hitting a desk it could be me slamming a door and walking out of a meeting it could be um, me telling somebody to go away in a less than polite manner um, and, and and often those those instances then are viewed as as that being something to do with a character so they then become a trait so that mm. that momentary emotion of that uh, flooding out or outpouring of anger then becomes a trait or they're they're you know they are they're an angry person or they are um irritable or they are um you know, it, it becomes a, a trait for the individual and depending on the severity of that absolutely you know appropriate disciplinary action may need to be taken depending on what it was you know if somebody's flooding out involve them hitting somebody else and that is a clearly inappropriate action in the workplace but i think we often we too often go to those extremes mm-hmm. so we either go to oh well it's extreme in that we're you know we're hitting somebody if it's anger or we want people to be happy and for me there's a whole massive range of grey area in between so like when I remember being part of a, a team where where somebody was called oh they're just awkward they are just a pain in the ass 
and if there's a way that they can put if there's a way they can like stop stop you getting where you need to get to or put a, put a barrier in the way then they will do it and i said are you sure that's what are you sure that's what they are you know they are obstructive or they are annoying is is what them as a person or is this about their um, could it be about their personality and that they you know where where they they're really good at identifying flaws or, or downsides in what you're doing or actually is it that they're not being heard on something else and mm. what you're seeing is is the display of frustration and not being heard or frustration and not being um, recognized that's playing out in different ways but rather than go and ask somebody rather than go and ask that individual or try and find out what's happening we just make an assumption that they're just awkward mm. um and and all of that is just unhelpful for me. Yeah. Sorry, I, that was a I, long that was a long monologue. Oh, Sorry. not a, not at all. And and what a wonder you you answered a few questions I was about to ask you there, which was around your different versions of your why. You mentioned you're on your fifth version of why. I really like that that distinction between happiness and contentment, and that idea of happiness being happy with your lot. And I, I really resonate with that, that. That there's a degree of um, kind of emotional maturity that comes with that. Um, I, I, I forget the um, attribution, but there is a there is a, a, a quote running around around, you know, if you don't know how much is enough, the default is always more. And oh, I that's that, nice. That I've not heard that before. That's nice. And you can apply that to all sorts, can't you? You can apply it to things like salary, or to, um, to you know the accumulation of things, mm-hmm. or it could be around relationships. Um, you know, but the, the idea of you know, if you don't have a conversation with yourself at some point and say, "How much is enough?" When am I prepared to say, "Yeah, this is this is enough. I'm content with my lot." Your default will always be, "I want more. I need more." See, so I also think though that 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 applies to an individual. Mm. Um. So. Um, oh. The, see the risk is I'm going to like quote on my back catalogue of stuff now. Do it. Um, Do but it. I, 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 so I, I will self censor and, and not and, and do it anyway. Um, so the I did an night talk at the L and D show in 2016, I think it was. It might be a 17. I can't remember now. Um, along and again, we'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but it was along the lines of. Um, am I enough or or when am I enough Um, and it took me a a long time to get to a point where I was able or or satisfied to say to myself I'm enough now for a long time I was chasing things that I felt like I needed Um, so to a certain degree even my MSc in completing that mm. was that was a, a chase because I'd never I'd never shown because I never went to uni I never did an undergraduate degree so you know 17 18 finished my levels got the lowest grade possible that you can get before you fail so I got three E's when I was predicted to be in two C's um, and and I I really should have failed those exams and, and I don't know how I got through because I did no revision whatsoever um, I was far too busy working at McDonald's, earning money and having fun. Um, and But I, I always felt like I let my mum and dad down by not going to uni. 
Um, and, and I was, you know, I, I remember the look on their face when I handed them my A-level results and I said, yeah, well, never mind, don't matter anyway, I'm off out of the pub. Um, and and I, I remember being in the hallway and literally just handed them the envelope, turned around and walked out the door and went out, yeah, this is about 10 o'clock in the morning and I was just on a session all day. Um, because I genuinely didn't care. Um, and part of that, I guess, you know, if I look back on it, part of that was about me rebelling, part of that was about kind of pushing back against their expectations, but also part of it was that, I just didn't find anything that interested me academically. I was interested mm. in people. Um, and, you know, even when I did sociology at level, it was all about Marxism and Leninism and socialism and all that. And I was like, I don't care about any of that. I want to know about people. And I want to learn how, um, you know, what happens in, uh, in in the way that people interact with each other. But I was, but I know, I do know that I was chasing that for a long time. There's been other things that I've been chasing as well. Um, and, and I'm not sure when it was. I can't. I can't pinpoint it. But I, I remember being getting to a point of thinking, you know what? Yeah, there's. I, I don't. I don't need to chase anything else. If there's other things I want to do, then I'll do them because I want to do it. So, do I want to do a PhD? Yes, but I'm not chasing that. For me, there's a. I can feel the tangible difference in my, um, in in my look in my outlook at that. That part of the reason I did the MSc was because I was chasing that kind of attainment of academic um level mm. um but this isn't about you know PhD isn't about that I've got you know I've, I've I've I'm okay with I'm enough with what I've got I want to do a PhD because I want to do that but I'm not because I want to um do more research I want to do more I want to publish more papers I want to write I actually I don't want to write more because I don't like writing but um <clears throat> there's other reasons I want to do the PhD which isn't about chasing something so it's not about chasing the badge or chasing this or chasing the other it's it's doing it because it's doing it whilst knowing that who I am and and what I do is enough and Mm. the risk is there's a risk in that that I sound like this kind of you know um annoying not annoying what frame do I want to put around it I I, I, I sound like somebody who you know, doesn't ever feel inadequate or doesn't ever feel any of those things. And that's just a load of shit because I mm. do. I still feel all of those things. Um, but I find it a lot easier now to remind myself that I am enough. Mm. So could I charge higher fees? Yes. But I know that what I am is enough and I know what I charge is enough. Could I do more of this stuff? Yes. But I know that I don't need to do that. I could do it, but I don't need to for me, you know, and sometimes I'll feel a psychological pressure or put pressure on myself to do more of these things or do less of these things or change this or change that. Um, And I have to remind myself, no, you know, you reviewed your lot a while ago Mm -hmm. and you looked at your lot and went, I'm really content with my lot, actually. There's other things I'd like to do, but if you were to say to me, Phil, this is it, this, this is it, this is, it's going to be this forever. I'd go brilliant. Yes, I'm happy with that. Mm. And gosh, what a great what a great step to get to. Some people get, go through their entire lives and don't reach that that step. Um, sadly, I think I think that's very much the case where people just strive and strive and strive and for for more and more and more without really having that conversation with themselves. Do you um just just going back to that that st- mm. that step in your life where you where you had there must have been a conversation you had with either yourself or with somebody else or with a group of people where you decided to take that step to focus on what you focused on for your MSc. Can you, can you describe that, that step? Did you have a conversation with yourself? Was it, were other people involved in that, 
in that decision to to undertake your MSc? Um, no, so so yes and no. So, um, no, if I'm honest, nobody nobody else was involved in the decision. Mm. So I made that decision. What I then needed was to secure the support to allow it to happen. Um, so, what mm. once I once I found the MSC, then. I knew I knew straight away. As soon as I as soon as I knew of it of its existence, I was like, "That's it. That's mm. that. If if that's it, if there's something that's going to get me into studying, then then this is it. Be, you know, and it, because it was about everything that I love. It was about emotion. It was about credibility, and it was about deception, and it was about the interplay of those three things. And it was about psychology, and it was about linguistics, and it was about sociology, and it was about um, and and I'm, I know that some of these disciplines overlap. It's about pragmatics. It's about linguistics. It was about you know, theory of mind. It was about um, applications in, in in corporate and forensic and, and other settings. It, it was just you know everything I, I, I wanted because it was all about people, yeah. and it was all about. And this this for me, I think, is is one of the bits I think that makes me different. Is a lot of people focus so. And, and if I run the risk of if I'm disparaging to anybody, I don't mean to. What I'm, I'm what I'm advocating is my view of, of 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 things as I sit here today. I think a lot of people focus on what goes on within. So whether that be through personality profiling, whether that be through cognitive psychology, whether that be through neuroscience, whether that be through um, whatever discipline you choose, a lot of people focus on what happens in the mind. Now there's another group of people that focus on what happens between. So they focus on what happens between people. What happens, you know, how do... Um, so you might include something like um, uh, you know, linguistics within it. You know, so what that... Linguistics is the study of, of language use. So that that's analysing what happens between people, not what's within somebody's head. And for me, the, the what what those, those two disciplines miss loads of stuff because those that go on between those that focus on what goes on between don't link that then back to what goes on within mm. and those that look within don't translate that to what goes on between and that for me is a massive oversight you can't just look at what happens within and not then consider what happens between and you can't just look at what happens between and not consider what happens within so my supervisor for my research project so we my, yeah, where, where my PhD is going is researching this notion of face and face work. And that's about the kind of micro identities that we negotiate for ourselves in the interactions that we have. Now, the sociologists only look at what happens in the interaction. And I'm saying to my supervisor, but we're missing a trick. We have to link this back to what happens within. This has to link back to um, individuals reality paradigms this has to link into individuals sense of self and identity and, and personality and the way that they see and articulate themselves because the way that I describe myself to myself in my head will then show up in what happens between so to just look at what happens between and not consider what goes on in the head that's just bonkers for me and likewise you know if a um if a neuroscientist is saying, oh, this is what's happening in the brain. So when I'm showing people these sorts of images or when I'm asking them to lie in an fMRI scanner and think about these things, this is what's happening in the brain. Well, that's lovely, but that doesn't translate across to what happens. To look at that in isolation without thinking about what happens between is 
really limiting. It's limiting in, in, in the scope and the application and so on of your research because people don't walk around life inside an fMRI scanner. So there's no point in saying when you know when people are doing this, this is what's happening in their brain. No, that was what happened in their brain in an fMRI scanner when they were presented with because if let's let's think about it right oh god i'm on a soapbox now right so you've got a neuroscience research that's happening what's happening invariably that's involving different equipment either it's involving an mri or an fmri scanner mm-hmm. or it's involving um an eeg or it's involving a another one a ps something that i can't remember what it is None of some EEGs are portable, some P thing jiggies are portable, but an fMRI scanner. So, if you're talking about real kind of in depth brain scan analysis work, then you can't. And then, what's if, if you haven't been in an MRI scanner, it's like a big tube that you have to sit inside, and then a magnet goes around. So, mm-hmm. playing you sounds is tricky because an, F, an MRI scanner is really noisy, and, and all that's left then is to show you pictures. Um, and if you were to recall, you know, if you were to have an audio conversation with somebody when you're in an MRI scanner, that again brings big risks because MRI scanners need stability. They need you to be still to analyze the, to get accurate um, and clear images. So if you're asking somebody to have a conversation, then that's going to involve, and you're doing a brain scan, mm-hmm. bearing in mind the conversation is going to involve movement of the mouth and the, you know, mouth movement of the chin, um, potentially movement of the nose, you know, and all those sorts of things, then that risks movement. And if the people are moving, then the images are less clear. So the for all of the neuroscience research that is done, I challenge the majority of its validity in the workplace. Mm. It's interesting. Don't get me wrong. I find it absolutely fascinating. But the transferability then over to the workplace is really, really tricky. So your listeners can't see me at the moment, but I'm beaming because I'm reminded suddenly of the first time I came across you and your thoughts and your experiences that you share with the world, which was via Twitter. And it was one of the big sort of L&D, HR, Twitter hours that take place during the week. And um, something that I, I instantly started associating your name and Twitter handle with was a word beginning with C. <laughs> I don't know what, don't know what you mean. I don't know what that word is. Um, and so and the one with C that ends in T, that one. It, it, it absolutely is. <laughs> it's it's the context bell. It's the context bell, and uh, we we can ring it. I wish I brought a bell with me because I was starting to sort of ring it in my head there. But you, it, it's so right, and it is. It has to take place um, with the interplay between two, and and it's the same with with so many other aspects of life, and 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 you're looking at design thinking as well, where you've got an architect. Yep or a designer, they would never design something in isolation, like a chair. You design a chair that has to sit place within a room, and that room has to sit place within a house. The house has to sit place within a street, within a city, within a town, and so on. They, on all of those things interweave together to create an experience that other people observe and interact yeah. with. And j- just, as, just as you've described that, the interplay within things, if, if the context piece is missed, um, you lose out on a lot of richness. Um, so how did, yeah. um, at the start of the podcasts that you do, bringing this back to the review of your of your yeah, yeah. sort of 12 yeah. months, you talk about the interplay between three constructs that, that you describe as overlapping. So yeah. do you want to say something about that? What are those constructs and, and how do they overlap? And why did you choose um, those three? 
So, so in a way, I didn't choose those. So, are we um, are we talking about emotion, credibility, and deception? Those three. Yes. Okay. So, so in a way, I didn't choose those three. I was introduced to those three through the MSC, I suppose, in a way. So, or I, I was aware of those three things, but I hadn't necessarily linked them together in in that way. Um, but the so so if I if I may I'll play I'll play with it with an example. Good. So I um, one of one of the forming kind of mo- so and, and so I'm using my past experience plus those three lenses to to kind of decode something that happened for me. So one of the jobs I used to have was in a call center, and I was good at that. Um, I could, um, you know, I could often understand and really empathise with customers that were ringing up, um, and 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 I, and I I did that job really well. Now there was one call in particular, um, and uh, the lady and I went round and round and round in circles. Um, we were two. We 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 took two very different positions. Um, and mine was then siding on the side of the company and hers was um, you know, supporting her, her view. And after about 45 minutes, I leant over um, to the kind of headset or the, the turret, as it was called. And on there was a mute button. And, and I hit the mute button, led back in my... Because she, um, she'd opened a monologue, so she started... You know, so I, I'd learned that when mm. she said this particular phrase, that meant she was going to go on a... a, a you know, she was going to... She would have a, a number of seconds, if not a minute, of, of monologue because she was going to lay out her position again. So I leant over, hit the mute button, and said, uh, I suppose it's my podcast, so I can swear. So I leant over, hit the mute button, and said, you know what, why don't you just shut the fuck up and start crying like a bitch? Mm. And, and, then, and then in my ear, I heard pardon. Uh, so I hadn't hit the mute button. Ah, okay. <laughs> so she then... Uh, so I then tried to explain it away. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Did you hear that? I was trying. I was talking to um, a colleague opposite who was being really noisy, and they were distracting me from um, from talking with you. Meanwhile, filled with panic, um, filled with panic, filled with regret, because and, and you know, in in an instant, I'd gone from being really angry, and and because I've been I've been doing all the classic stuff. I've been pacing around, sitting down, standing up again. So I've been getting more and more frustrated with this lady. Um, un- unjustifiably so, by the way, when I look back on it with reflection. Mm. Um, and now I was filled with regret, filled with fear, filled with um, uh, more anger, but this time uh, directed at myself for um, you know for either A, not hitting the mute button, and B, just saying it in the first place. Um, and then she hung up. And then I went on, uh, I went on not ready, which is a button you could press to signify that... Um, you weren't able, you know, so no calls would come through to you when you're not ready. And and I just sat there and I waited and I waited and I waited and then I saw it. And so if, if from the desk I was sat at, the lady that took the call was at my 10 o'clock. So, you know, the classic kind of mm-hmm. uh, fighter jet analogy. So she was at my 10 o'clock and I just saw her head pop up and look direct at me and then slowly kind of slink back down again. And I was like, there it is. Mm-hmm. There's the call. Uh, then... Um, my then the phone on my line manager's desk rang. She looked up at me, looked over at the lady, and then she and then my boss went over. No, she didn't. The, the, then the call got put through to my boss's desk. So I just stayed sat there and I just stayed sat on not ready, sat stock still, not knowing what to do. 
Um, and then well, when, the, once my manager finished, she said, get out of the canteen, wait for me down there, I'll be down in a minute. And, and she came downstairs and her open, she asked me one question and that question was, did you do it? Now, at that moment, those three disciplines of emotion and credibility and deception were all at play in my mind. So I've been sat there downstairs thinking, how could I explain it away? What could I say that would maintain my credibility? You know, I, I had a really strong reputation. I'd been performing well. I'd been, you know, I'd had two kind of mini promotions. Um, I, I was, you know, my, my, I was on track to, you know, to continue my career. And I'm sat thinking, you know what? I, I really need to be fired for what I've done. So how can I do it? How can I save myself? Um, because, so I was riddled with emotion. My credibility was massively at risk here. And the temptation to lie was huge because I didn't want to admit that I'd done it because if I admitted that I did it I might get sacked and if I might get sacked then I'd have to tell my parents that I've been sacked I'm gonna have to tell my my girlfriend who because I was with my wife at the time we weren't married but I'd have to tell my girlfriend that I've been sacked for doing this then they're not gonna be able to provide me a reference which means that for for this five years of, of work that I've had I'm not gonna be able to I'm gonna not be able to provide a reference for that so that's not going to be great for any future employment either. So my career prospects are nose diving. You know, my whole life is like falling apart in front of my eyes. And the temptation to hide was huge um, because I was ashamed. You know, I was really ashamed mm. of what I'd done. Um, so when she asked me, did you do it? My, my, I sat and I just said, yeah, I did. I said, I'm really sorry, but I did. She went, go home, come back in tomorrow. Um, come back in it. I can't remember what time she said. Go home. Come back in tomorrow. I'll let you know what we're going to do. And that night was awful. Oh, it was mm. just the worst experience. Went in the next day, um, and she said to me, "Here's your final written warning. If you do anything like this again in the next six months, you're out the door. Keep your nose clean, um, and it'll go in time." And I and I I was absolutely flabbergasted. Couldn't believe it. And I said, "Why?" She said, because you admitted it. If you'd have done anything else, I'd have sacked you. But because you said, yeah, straight away, no no excuses, no kind of, no reasoning, no nothing. You just went, yeah, yeah, I did. Hmm. Um, and not in an, you know, it wasn't like in an arrogant way. It was, you know, she said, I could see the regret um, kind of written all over you. Um, and, and that was kind of, so that, that, that day was really pinnacle for me for a few different reasons. So one, because what I think it does is it really illustrates how those three disciplines overlap. So if you then think about the workplace and you think about, say, something like mistakes, you know, everyone talks about, you need, we need to create cultures where people can make mistakes. That, you know, that is so easily said yeah. and massively hard to do because a mistake is seen by individuals themselves. Because if you ask most people, if you make a mistake, you know, does that make you look bad? Yes. So in my words, does that risk your credibility? Yes, it does. So therefore, um, if something's risking your credibility, then that's likely to um, trigger emotions in you. Now, which emotions it will be, I could have a good guess, but let's just go with emotions for now. So therefore, the temptation to hide that mistake, especially if it's a small one, I mean, mine was monumentally big, but if it's a small one, then it could just be easy to hide that and brush it under the carpet and not have to worry about it because you want to maintain your credibility. Mm. And it's, you know, it's the reason why senior leaders won't admit mistakes. It's the reason why you know, people will hold back communication. It's the, you know, so, so they, and just using mistakes as an example, but it's that interplay of those three that, um, 
I get really fascinated by because deception doesn't happen without feelings and deception doesn't happen without people thinking about their reputation or their credibility. People can't think about their reputation or their credibility without um, it involving emotions and then without them being concerned about how other people might see them, which means they want to manage the information. Um, And and, deception is a very evocative word but yeah there's a real spectrum of what counts as deception you know mm. and it even depends on what definition you use of deception but if i put that to one side so and, and that moment was also really um kind of pinnacle for me because it was the day i decided that um i had to pay more attention to my emotions and at the time i, I phrased it as i won't let my emotions get the better of me again and, and to, uh, I can't say that that's ever I can't say that's happened because emotions have got the better of me many many times since then but that was a, a I was all I was always kind of aware of other people and myself but that kind of moment of being told no you're not going to be sat and here's your final written warning the, that steeled something in me then to say right these are these things are crucial and if you can't work with these, what I wouldn't at this time at that point in my life, I wouldn't have used these words. But if you can't work with these things effectively, then you are always going to be on the back foot. So you know, this you, this matters. You've got to pay attention to these and and manage these and work with these differently, because what's happened can't happen again. Mm. Can you talking about emotions? Can you remember the emotion that went through your mind when when you received that final wish and warning? What 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 was what was the, what the series of emotions that happened when when she handed over that written warning and you were clearly expecting something else? Uh, so surprise and then relief, mm. just just and, and also and and whether this is whether this is valid or not, I don't know. But it, it, if that if that manager rang me now and asked me for something, I would drop everything and do it. Mm. So. There's, I have a huge, I have a huge sense of indebtedness to to her for doing what she did. Now, I, I don't know for sure whether it was her decision to do that. She certainly left me with that impression. Um, yeah, she left me with, she certainly left me with the impression that she, you know, she could have sat me and she chose not to. So it's not like this was someone else's call or someone else's decision. Um, but the 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 sense of indebtedness that that created in me was then huge. And and wanting to make it up to my to her and to myself mm. was there. So yeah, initially surprise slash amazement, relief, but then a a real sense of right. I owe you. Yeah, you know, anything you want, I will work my you know I'll work my ass off for you. Anything yeah. you want, anything you need, I'll do it. Um, you know because uh, and, and this is where it then goes back into credibility now because now I'm like right, I have to make it good. I have to repair. After because so if I if I use the language that I would now use my competence face, I, I had I had taken a massive chunk out of my competence face. I had lost mm. a huge amount of competence because it got around. You know this isn't something that was kept quiet in a call center of fifty people. You know a people heard me say it. B then people knew that I'd been sent down to the canteen. I hadn't come in the next morning and you know and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so this was, you know, it was common knowledge. So I knew that I had some repair work to do. I had to repair my com- my competence face to, to be able to do my job and do it well. But I also needed to repair my personal face because people were like, really, Phil? Phil said that? Really? You know, he, he I know he likes a bit of a sweary in the pub and you know, not in the office and never with a customer. Um, yeah, so I had a lot of repa- a lot of face repair work to do. 
Um, and also, I needed to kind of demonstrate the the trust that was shown in me. You know, so I couldn't let that. I couldn't let my manager down. I couldn't let her down because if I did, then that would look bad on her. Mm. So as well as having to, you know, as well as having to repair my face, it was well, I can't screw up again because she's given me a chance. And mm. if you know. Whether she did do this or not, I don't know because I never asked her. But like, I, I in, in my mind, I'd envisioned her pleading my case in the dock with with you know HR as the judge or or the senior leader as the judge or whatever it was, and her pleading my case for me to stay. And then if if I then let her down, she'd then have to go back in and and say, yeah, sorry, I got it wrong. Um, so I'd like imagine this whole court case where she'd been there, you know, wig on and everything, pleading my case. Um, so I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't let her down. It just, it just wasn't an option. I, I'm interested in that repairing a face piece. Maybe we can we'll stay with that for a minute. And, and before we do, I, thank you for the story. That's such a compelling story. And I'm, I'm sure that they, there will be listeners there who have been in those moments, those sort of life-defining moments of shame that you end up revisiting you know in the dark hours and you wake up in the middle of the night and you go oh my gosh did that really happen that really happened to me how did yeah. the, how did I let myself get into that I, I and I'll happily share with you one of my own it's not on the yeah. scale not on the scale of yours but it's it's um it's it's something I put in my shame well that I, I I revisit regularly so when I was um when I was a teenager I spent a lot of time working in hotels and restaurants in the sort of service industry and there was mm. um, a hotel I was working in uh, when I, was, I think I must have been about 17 and it was one of those uh, kind of restaurants that had a carvery and an, hors, and an hors d'oeuvres plate like a chilled hors d'oeuvres plate you don't see them anymore really but yeah um, okay, I know what you mean I remember drifting over to this this woman who I, I could see was struggling at the hors d'oeuvres plate she was trying to pick up some some melon balls or something and um, I sort of approached her from from behind and just sort of said gently oh can I offer you a hand with that and she turned round and to my horror she only had one hand. She was missing a hand. Oh, no. And I, I, I kind of clocked that instantly as she turned round. And my, in my surprise, rather than sort of apologising or explaining, I just let out a kind of a laugh, like a, ah, aha, like that. And it was just involuntary. So, and, and this, this woman's face turned from kind of shock and surprise to anger in the blink of an eye. Yeah. And and I, I'd realised that not only had I kind of looked like I'd insulted a disability, but I'd then laughed at her uh, through no, you know, absolute, you know, in purely innocent yeah. intentions. And I yeah. sort of scurried off into the kitchen, spent the rest of the night polishing cutlery. And um, I, in that particular instance, that that story got around as well. She yeah. she made a series of complaints. I didn't get fired, but I. I decided at the time, I never would have used this language, but it, the loss of face was too much to repair. So I just left and yeah, got okay. another job somewhere else. Yeah. So in your example, and for those of those listeners who are sort of listening in around these, these types of um, examples that we see in the workplace, what steps can people take if they are going to repair face? What sort of things need to happen? Um... A repair job. Yeah, so so face is a bit of a tricky thing in that um, it's never exclusively yours to own. So part of your face is always on loan to somebody else. 
So what I mean by that is, so faces is a, a, a version of ourselves that we negotiate um, in the interactions that we have. And there are, um, but because it's a negotiation, unless we have, um, uh, I'll come back to power a bit later, but mm. because it's a negotiation, what that means is that other parties need to agree. So if I'm going to take a line, if I'm going to, to negotiate a version of myself as somebody who is this or somebody who does that or somebody who knows this, that needs to be accepted by other people. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, in the main, it will be. And, and this um, links back to some a guy whose research is just massively underutilized, a guy called Jeffrey Leach, who, who talks about something called the cooperative principle, which is in general, people will cooperate in, in interaction, people will cooperate with one another. So if I say this is something that I'm known for, or this is something that I'm good at, or this is something that I know, or this is a, an experience that I've had, then most people will go, okay, and they'll, they'll, they'll go with that. They won't um, actively disagree or challenge or, or not allow you to take that line. Now, there are times, though, when that won't work, where you will try and take a line and other people won't let you do that. So this, an example of that is where, say, you're in a meeting and uh, you, you're not the chair. So you're not the chair, you're not the facilitator, but you're annoyed at the conversation and you want it to move on. So you do something to try and move that conversation on. So what's happening in that micro kind of moment is when I say, come on, we've spent long enough on this, can we just move on now? I, I am trying to negotiate a, a, a line or a face for me of someone who has the ability to move this meeting on. Mm. So someone who has enough influence or enough sway to move that meeting on. Now, whether that meeting moves on or not will depend on the strength of my face. So if I don't have the credibility or the or the influence or the power or the sway, then my my negotiation will be ignored. People will go, no, we're not ready to move on. Actually, mm. we need we we need to stay with this and explore it for longer. Um, a different example would be I was in a meeting with a with a board once where the HR director started talking about the financial performance of the company. I think I mentioned this in one of my previous podcasts, mm. and the finance director um, wouldn't let them do it. I said, that's not your role. Your role is people. My role is numbers. So if someone's going to talk about the financial reports of the company, that's me. So what was, So the finance director in that example saw the HR director trying to talk about numbers as a threat to their face. They were like, no, that's me. That's not you. Um, so when you say, how can people repair? So part of it is, is about actions that you take. But part of it is about other people then accepting that you that your actions are enough to do the repair job. So you know when you know when somebody's crossed you or they've disappointed you or they've um, done something that's really surprised you. You know, at what point do they then get accepted back in, or what time do their contributions then get accepted back in? Um, and and as the individual who's made the transgression, you're you cannot dictate when you get let back in. Mm. and that's so that I would argue that's part of the reason that you chose to resign rather than stay because actually it might have been it, it, it was it would be more work to repair that face than it is to go off and negotiate negotiate a new one somewhere else mm. so how can you repair your face then so one of the things that so I haven't answered your question and now I'll, now I'll, I will so one of the things that that humans as we look for is consistency 
And often a loss of face is because you do something that is inconsistent with the face that you've negotiated. So in your example, say you negotiated your face as a um, as a um, as an attentive, supportive, customer focused individual, um, and maybe just an all round nice guy. And what in your in your in your interaction with the with the lady at the dessert area? is actually you lost some of those you were in, you acted in a way that was inconsistent with those versions of you that you negotiated mm-hmm. so what then you so one of the easiest ways to repair your face is to then go back to being consistent is to is to consistently um, deliver in line with the face that you've now negotiated with yourself now one of the decisions that you've got to make is do i try and restore the face that i originally had or do I try and negotiate a new one or mm. a new version of that face? So for me, as an example, um, another decision I chose to make was, and, and it's not about shouting it from the rooftops, but if people ask me about that incident, I would be open about it. So I chose to own the mistake. So rather than go back and negotiate the face I had before, which was, Phil is, you know, Phil doesn't talk like that. Um, Phil doesn't um, interact with customers in that way. Phil is a safe pair of hands. Phil will always deliver. Phil will, you know, and Phil's an all around nice guy. Then that was the face I had before. So the face I then, I again, I didn't language it at this time and there wasn't even a conscious thought to say this is what I'm doing. But as I look back now, I can see that what I decided to do was to negotiate a new face, which is, I screw up and I work hard to fix it. That's that's the face I'm now taking. I, I'm going to own the screw up, and like I'm not going to shout it from the rooftops. But if people ask, I will be open. Um, um, but I will the face I'm going to to kind of renegotiate for myself, or the way I'm going to repair my credibility is by doing a yes, I screw up, but I only screw up once. Mm. You know, I don't I don't mm. do it again. I, you know, I learned my mistake and, and off I go. Um, so, so one, so one of the key tenets about repairing face is consistency and it's acting in a way that's consistent with the face that you've negotiated. But to a certain degree, you've got an element of choice, even though you may not be aware of it, about, well, what line do I want to take now then? So now this has mm. happened, what, where, what line do I want to take with this from here? Do I... Because, you know, different people take different lines. Some people will take a... I don't want to talk about. I don't talk about that. Yeah, that was horrible. Just don't talk about that. Um, you know, that's the, and, and that's then part yes. of the face that they're negotiating. They're negotiating a. We ignore that. We carry on face. And you, you know, yeah, you got you got to a certain degree. You have got choices. Whether those those may be in or out of awareness, but you've got choices about the type of face you renegotiate for yourself. Okay, I like that. So it's about consistency and the choice that you make as to whether you restore the face that you had or renegotiate a different face a new one yeah mm, like or, or a new or a new version of it so mm. if one of the things i don't like about face is the metaphor we often use is a mask and i don't like it yeah. because a mask implies you implies you're trying to be somebody else but i can't think of a better one so um all, all of these behavioral masks that you wear are still your face so they're always you so you're, it's not like you, it's not about you pretending to be somebody else. It's not like oh, I'm Phil, but I'm going to pretend to be Mark. It's I, I, I am Phil, and I'm negotiating these different lines. 
Um, but the um, the is solidity a word? Is that a word? Yeah. The solidity of those masks then um, change over time. So when you first negotiate a line, when you first negotiate a version of you. So this is a, the the one of the most relatable examples of this is when somebody gets promoted or a new role within an organization. So I've worked, uh, so let's take an example. I worked with a um, HR business partner a few years ago who had started as an admin assistant, then a HR advisor, then a um, HR consultant, and then a HR business partner. Now there were a, a collection of managers who would regularly ask her to do things like meeting minutes, um, issue letters, that sort of stuff. And the reason they did that is because that's what she used to do when she was a um, admin assistant and when she was a HR advisor. Mm. Now, what she hadn't done was successfully negotiate a new version of her face, which is as a HR business partner, I don't do that stuff for you anymore. So what she what she wanted to do was to let go of those tasks but those tasks were associated the individuals the managers in question had associated those tasks with her identity with who she is or this this is something that they do this is what they're 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 known for this is their actions that they do so it's part of the the face that she negotiated Mm. um now if she left and went somewhere else she wouldn't have that that issue would disappear in a heartbeat because what she's doing is she's negotiating a new face. So yes, she comes with an element of competence because you know she works at HR. She'll have a job title, so that will bring some certain associations with it. But the the face that she'd negotiated for herself as a HR advisor was still fairly solid as a HR business partner. And her fa- you know the face that she wanted as a HR business partner wasn't very solid either. So she had like this mix of faces. So yes, she would get involved in the business partnery you know strategic stuff but also she'd get pulled in to do minutes and issue letters mm. so what what she my, my, when i was mentoring her my advice to her is what you need to do is you need to explicitly renegotiate your face with these managers in particular you need to sit down and, and and discuss with them and negotiate with them what is your role and how will you best support them in what they do and one of the challenges we got with face is that the negotiations we do are often very implicit so we don't know that often we don't know that we're doing them. Other people don't know that we're doing them. So when you find yourself being dragged into stuff that you used to do in the past, or you're being asked to do things that you don't want to do, or you are being asked opinions on areas that you don't feel comfortable with, then that's because other people's version of of, the, of your face looks different to how your face looks to you. So to you, your face looks like this, but other people look at it and see something different. So the the more you can do to to make your faces explicit, then the clearer people will be in, in what they can expect, what they want, and, and how to interact with you. Hmm. I, I'm um, thanks for that, Phil. It's another great example, another another nice story of how this would come through in the workplace. I um I love a metaphor, so I, I'm going to volunteer one. Feel free to challenge it. Yeah, um, go go. Faces. So if, if we're gonna if we're gonna put the masks metaphor aside for talking about face. As you were describing your story and that, that previous story, I started thinking about houses and rooms in a house and that the many faces that we wear could be analogous to spending time in various rooms in the house. There'll be some that we prefer spending time in. There'll be some that we don't spend that much time in and suffer as a result. 
and occasionally um, but there is a choice to be able to do that there is crucially there's a choice as to where you spend time investing in that face and replenishing that face and and being, being comfortable with presenting that face to the world and I guess when damage occurs you've got some choices as well you can repair that room exactly as it was restore it to its you know former glory or yeah, okay. you can replace it or you can extend it um, or you can move <laughs> so I, I I like it can I play with it for a minute so how it. how would that how do we bring in the dynamicness of interaction into that then so so you're you're in your house with your rooms and I'm in my house with my rooms how do, how do we bring the dynamism of, of interaction to that um okay so when um the face that you present when you're in that room by yourself is different, can be different to the face that you present when you have guests around. Okay. The choice that you make in order to present it in such a way that says, I don't know, in, in, in this, if we just play with the analogy, um, yeah, I, am, I, I am somebody who keeps a clean and t- tidy house. I fill it full of beautiful things and I'm very welcome and hospitable and you're welcome to spend time in this room with me, um, reinforcing your opinion of me in this room as much as you like. Um, whereas when that person leaves, you might be happy sort of leaving things lying around. Um, maybe you, you sort of, you present yourself to yourself in a different way through the through the lack of urgency to um, establish that face or negotiate mm. that face with another person. So I, I, I like that as a way of um, thinking about the the distinction between within and between mm. so so because for me what what you just described then was um what i would call impression management which is i, I i'm I'm, quite, I'm okay with a little bit of mess um you know i don't want it's, it i can't cope with it being filthy um but I, i'm okay if, if there's a little bit of mess but if somebody's coming around, it has to be tidy. Um, because I want people to see me as somebody who has a clean, tidy, well-organized house or room, whatever that might be. Um, so I, I, I like, because for, for, cause for me, that's, I got really interested in that, um, that transition that goes from how do I see myself to how then to what then do I portray to other people? Mm. So, like my my internal face and my external face, if that makes sense. Mm. So, and and this is where you know you could argue that actually a mask as an analogy does hold weight because if you if you imagine like a you know like a, a classic mask on a pole like you'd have in theatre, I can look at the inside of that mask and go, this is how I want this to be seen. I want to be seen. This is how I'm imagining my face looks. But what I can't see is what's on the other. When I'm holding that in front of me, mm. what I can't see is what other people see. Mm. So other people might see a, diff, a, a slightly different face to the one that I'm looking at from the inside. 
Um, or I, actually, I might say this is the face that I see inside, but I don't want people to see that. So I'm going to manage how people see this one on the outside um, by, you know, uh, pretending or adapting or, or masking or covering or something like that, you know. So actually, I, I don't want what I see internally and what the exter- and the external representation, I want them to be different mm. in that way. Um But I don't, yeah. So, I, I, but I don't know how it would work in that. So, with the house metaphor, because I can't, I can't bring my room to your room. If that makes sense. So, if you and I are having, hmm. you know, so if if so, I, I talk about four four families of face in the workplace. Well, that's what that's what my research is telling me there are. Now there may be more because I'm in early days of my research. But my research so far is is, te- is indicating to me there are four families of face in the workplace. So one of those is competence. So that's the that's your knowledge, your skills, your expertise, what you're known for, um, it, and typically is associated with the tasks that you do, the objectives you 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 are tasked to meet that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then you have your your company face, which is the where you represent the organisation that you work for. So um, you and I are both we both describe ourselves as, as nerds and geeks and being interested in, in evidence and research and background. So that's that's both of our competence. You know, we have a shared competence face in that way or a shared element of a competence face in that way. But we wear two different company faces. I wear the Emotion at Work company face. You wear the TMSDI company face. So we both represent the organisations that we work for. Then you have um, your relationship face, which is the relationships that you then hold with other people. Mm. Now, even though I'm delineating these faces, often they will overlap. So um, there's been, there was a really interesting discussion that happened uh, recently on the Good Practice podcast, so, uh, name checked to the Good Practice podcast. <laughs> so there was a live podcast happened in London and Martin Cousins uh, at LearnPatch on Twitter put a challenge in the room around our ability lnd's ability to create acronyms and, and lingo and language that you know to describe stuff um and the ross garner's response to that was you know what but we, we are within a community of practice where we all we have a relationship with each other mm-hmm. so this is where so in this example i'm overlapping relationship with competence base we have a relationship with each other where we know each other in this room and we have a shared level of understanding so actually for us being a group of 50 lnd professionals in a room together we we are allowed to use that language because it is appropriate in our community of practice if for example we were with a different group of people so this is back to my favorite context thing if we were with a group of managers within an organization you know what we it would be more appropriate to use none of this language Mm. and to use something much more plain english and understandable because the relationships that we hold affect the interactions that we have and if you know somebody well you will um, interact with them differently to somebody that you've just met for the first time Mm. so and 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 different faces will be at play in, in that way and then the final one the fourth one is your personal face so this is your um you as an individual your interests your passions your um family your friends your commitments your values your beliefs you know everything that you kind of bring and so and, and if you imagine on a, if you imagine there's a stage and in the middle there's a spotlight and if there's two people in the interaction there's eight faces on that stage so mm. there's so in this if we use you and me as an example there are um, my four families of face and your four families of face uh, at the moment in the spotlight in the middle 
um, right now is my competence face as a practitioner and your competence face as an interviewer for a podcast. So they are the two things that are in the middle. Not long ago, both of our personal faces were in the spotlight because I talked about my example in the call center. You talked about your example in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So uh, now you could argue that potentially on the periphery of that spotlight was our relationship face because actually we get on really well. We're comfortable sharing those sorts of stories with each other. Um, And on the periphery of that spotlight is our competence face because we are talking about ourselves in the workplace and our actions and our tasks. But at the core of it, they were personal stories that we were sharing. So at any point in time, you could have two or four or six or even all eight of those families are facing the spotlight. Or, you know, you say you could have all eight, you could have just two. And to a certain degree, people will choose whether they put their face in the spotlight or not. So when I used my example earlier on of when people ask me about my, my mistake, I said I owned that and I put that in the spotlight. Whereas other people go, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. So somebody might say, oh, what happened with that customer? And I've got a choice now. Do I put that in the spotlight or do I leave it on the edge of the stage? Mm. Now, you might say, what happened with that customer? I'll say, oh, nothing. It was nothing really, just a small misunderstanding. Um, and you, as my as my um, compatriot in the conversation, you might go, all right, okay, fair enough, and leave it. Or you might say, no, you're not, Phil, I'm not going to let you go get away with that that easily. And you, you then try and drag it back in. You go, that's not what I heard. Mm. And you drag it into the spotlight. And I could resist you again. And I go, well, I don't know what you've heard, but well, you know, I can tell you that it, it was nothing major. It was mm. all right. It was fine. Nothing to, nothing to worry about. And I'm dragging it away again. And now, again, you've got a choice now. You could drag it back for a third time and go, well, I heard actually that you swore at a customer and that they made a massive complaint and that you came really close to being fired. Um, and, and again, I can I can resist or, or allow that. So I could resist it again and go, well, the rumours of my downfall have been greatly exaggerated. So I'm using some lovely linguistic strategies to not admit or deny what you're kind of suggesting. Mm. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm resisting you. I'm saying, no, I don't want to put that face in the spotlight. I want to leave it out please thank you very much mm. and, and and these negotiations and this is where i say your face is always part of your face is always alone to somebody else this is a negotiation that you and i are having you're wanting it and i'm resisting or you're wanting it and i'm giving it or we we collaborate together and we and we put whatever we want to put in the spotlight mm. so the the these interactions these negotiations are happening constantly all of the time in all the different interactions that we have mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, and great challenge on the on the house front. I do get that. I can't I can't bring my room to your room or vice versa. That does that. Yeah, that, that doesn't quite fit, does it? I, I want to think about. I'm not now, but mm. uh, that's something that I think off air it would be useful to to explore and kick around some more. Mm. And I guess that's quite a nice link into a change that happened over the course of the last twelve months in your podcast, which is you introduced something different. You had some. Um, uh, interviews, a sort of interview style uh, uh, mm. with, with expert um, uh, in, in particular areas. And then you introduced uh, a new element, which was emotional work stories, which started with Amanda Arrowsmith at Ponte Carlo Blue, um, yeah. talking about imposter syndrome. And then since then, you've had, uh, you, you referenced it earlier on, Tony Jackson talking about anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and then also Amy King talking about burnout. Yeah. So can you describe a little bit about what was what was going on there in terms of introducing that new element um, to the podcast series? and, and... So it, it was feedback from listeners, actually. Mm. Um, 
So it was. Uh, I can't remember who it was. I I, I want to say Annette Hill, mm. um, but I'm not sure if it. I I I wouldn't. I'm not a hundred percent sure that it was. Um, but I, I I got feedback from one person in particular and then when I mentioned it to some other people so I, I got the feedback and thought oh that's interesting I've not thought about doing that before which was you know what Phil I really like it and it really makes me think but what would be great is to hear like some real personal experiences of, mm. of people you know with emotion in the workplace um, and I thought yeah that's a really nice actually you know what that's something that I haven't done before that's something that we haven't included Um so then I asked a few other people and said, what do you think? And they were like, yeah, that'd be really, really great. That'd be really, really interesting. Um, and then I put a call out on Twitter to say, this is something I want to introduce into the podcast series. You know, who would be up for for contributing? Um, and Amanda was was you know first to put her hand up. And she talks in the podcast about how she put her hand up. And then she went, oh, but I'm sure there's somebody better than me. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Amy... Uh, she and I got talking because we 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 known each other for a while, and then we got talking, and she was sharing her experience with me. And I, you know, I then asked her after we'd finished chatting about it if she'd be interested in, you know, would she be will, interested, willing to share it as a story? Um, likewise with with Tony, and then we've got some others um, kind of coming up as well. But it was, I guess, that, yeah, there was a when that initial request came in, it got me thinking to go, well, you know, that actually is a what whilst I am in the podcast at the moment, my focus is on helping people understand what is happening either in the, either in their, in their culture, in their organizations, in their interactions, um, you know, and decoding stuff and giving them understanding as to what's happening in when different things are occurring. Actually, one of the key ways that emotion is, um, will affect change in individuals, but also, if I want to change the narrative, then I can't just change the narrative by almost taking like a third party stance on what's happening in the workplace. So there needs to be some first person narrative around that as well. So yeah, that's where the the decision then came to, to do the stories um, series. And it's interesting. I'm finding a few challenges with it. And, and when I share these challenges, these are then open requests to to get people to to engage so one of the challenges i'm finding is is men um mm-hmm. and 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 yeah so tony is a um at the moment is a is unique in that he's the first man that i'm that i that agreed to do an emotional work in stories uh, piece mm-hmm. um i've got one coming up on depression um which is going to be really interesting and but again that's with a lady not with a man mm-hmm. um, and and i'm i'm not making any gender stereotypes with that what i'm saying is i would love to have a more male voices talking about their emo- their stories around emotions in the workplace mm. now whilst a lot of it has focused on th- stuff that you might plot on a mental health spectrum so anxiety burnout stress and or stress and burnout um imposter syndrome depression to come you know I- i'd be really happy to chat with someone who's had an experience like you with the in the waiting environment in the restaurant environment or me in the call center environment who is willing to share a store share their experiences with emotions in the workplace mm-hmm. um it's a, and, and to get a, a broader diverse range of experiences and individuals on the air would, would be amazing because one of the things i'm really conscious of is 
you know, I, I use terms like imposter syndrome or burnout or anxiety, and they are single word labels for a huge diverse spectrum of experiences that people have. Mm. So what anxiety, how anxiety manifests itself for Tony, as an example, might be demonstrably different to how anxiety manifests itself for somebody else. Mm. How imposter syndrome manifests itself for Amanda might be demonstrably different to how it manifests itself for somebody else and the experiences that they've had in there. Because we're all different. We're all unique in that way. So even if, you know, my plea to, to the listeners then is even if you're thinking, oh yeah, but you've already had somebody on talking about that. No, I had somebody on talking about their experiences with that. That doesn't mean that that topic is now done or that topic is finished. There is, for me, there's more... Um, there's more exploration. There's more work to do. On a on a connected note, I noticed yesterday um, as a podcast that I've only recently started listening to has jumped to the top of the UK podcast list, and it's called Griefcast. And and ah, in okay. it, uh, they they have um, comedians and other sort of personalities come on and talk about their experiences of grief and. Strip me listening to one an episode of the day just had there are lots of connections to how grief is a is affected by and um, produces effects at work. I think I think there will yeah. be a lot of managing having a conversation with somebody about their experience of grief because they they can again as you say they can be hugely varied and 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 um, enormously nuanced and and uh, one person's experience of grief and how it manifested itself in their work could be very different from another's. I've had I've had two different conversations with two different people in the last two months, um, and neither of which are willing to come on the air because mm. for different for different reasons, but about grief, um, mm. because again it's it's one of the it's another one of those taboos you know yes. that's, that's not talked about. I did some coaching a, a while ago with a with a client who, um, who had a close family member who'd been diagnosed with a terminal disease, and they were getting very emotionally charged about the ways that other individuals were interacting with them mm. so some would ask directly in front of other people how is insert name of family member um, other people would say nothing other people would um you know mention um mention the disease and then go oh no oh, 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 and then get really uncomfortable um and i said look you, you've got a call to make you know well, you got a number, you've got a couple of calls that you could make one call is that those people that are doing things that you're finding unhelpful, I think that the the kindest thing you could do to them is to go and tell them what you need. So it's to tell them, mm. you know what, what I, I, when you see me, can you ask me how I am and not ask me how insert family, insert um, family member is? Um, or can you just like give me a nod and as a way of indicating you know or, so whatever you whatever you want it to be but the best thing you could do to help that, those individuals is to tell them what you need from them at the moment they're kind of firing in the dark they're doing what they think is is either what they would like or what they think you like or what they think would be the best thing to do um you know, the best thing you can do is to go and ask go, go, go and be explicit and say this is what i need from you right now mm. so if if you ask me am i okay and we're on our own and i say no what i don't need you to do is to solve my problems for me mm. i just need you to accept that i'm not okay mm. and be all right with that you know i don't need you to ask me any more questions i don't need you to counsel me i just need you to allow me to say no i'm not okay mm. and i'm here and let's go on with some work you know so what at the moment is our implicit 
um, assumptions that people are making. If you're finding it uncomfortable, then I guarantee they are as well. Yeah. And what would make you both more comfortable is make it explicit. Go and go and have that explicit conversation that says, this is what I need from you right now. Oh, and by the way, I might change my mind next week. I might even change my mind tomorrow. <laughs> but as I feel today, this is what I need from you. And is it okay if I let you know if I change my mind about what I need from you? Mm. And if the answer to that is yes, then great. You know, then then go for it. I said, but... Um, they're not doing it to an, you know, she said they're doing it to annoy me. So, well, I'm, that, that could be the case. Yeah. Or, you know, and or they're insensitive. So it could be that they're insensitive. It could also be that they're just doing their best with, with you know, the situation as they know it or what they think is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to get, um, I'm struggling to get people that are willing to come on at the moment anyway and talk about um, grief. So it feels like we're moving into a space of what could the future look like, the future of the Emotional Work podcast. And so if, if you and I could wave a magic wand and put someone on your guest list by this time next year, do you have someone in mind or do you have a series of people in mind that you would absolutely love to have on your podcast um, over so the next one, 12 months? So one person who's been on my wish list since the start of the podcast is is on. I've got a pre uh, I've got a pre call with them this evening because they're right. they're based in America, um. So I've got a pre call with them this evening where we're where we'll agree the the frame the um the you know the, how we'll how we'll set it up what sort of questions I'm likely to ask where we're what we're going to explore where I'm going to go that sort of stuff, um and as that individual and I confirm they'll do it, um, uh, was it too premature? Yeah, so it's, it's the world's leading researcher in something called emotion regulation. Okay. Now, emotion regulation for me is a, is a, is a much underused term. So it happens all of the time, but people don't language it in that way. And it's a very, for me, it's a very specific part of something like a broader definition of emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence is partly about awareness of emotion and then people talk about emotion management, but for mm. me, it's not about emotion management. It's the, the, the term is more, well, if it is, there's something before that because emotion management is something much more cognitive and deliberate because you're managing it. Whereas emotion regulation is, is maybe a bit before that, or maybe it needs to replace emotion management, which is how am I working with and regulating the different emotions that, that I'm experiencing. Mm. And the, Often people think that emotion regulation is about regulating it down, and that is just the biggest load of rubbish. Mm. Emotion regulation can involve regulating the emotion up mm. or down, or regulating it at a level. It's not, you know, there's, it's not always about. And that's where our challenge is the narrative. The narrative is you should, you know, reduce the intensity of the emotion. Why? There are some contexts where actually you want more intensity in the emotion. There are also some contexts where you want less intensity in the emotion, but it's not always, you know, the, for me, the default is we regulate it down. Yeah. Rubbish. It can. We, we, there are times where we might need to regulate it up or to maintain it at um, at a level. So, um, yeah, he's the, yeah, so he's on. Um, in terms and, of and will other... he be playing the Warren G and Nate Dogg song, Regulate, as you, as you introduce <laughs> that programme? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> See, right, so, so now, right, in, so now in my head, you've started off a, a train of thought, which is, can I work my introduction in a way that it would mimic the rap? <laughs> it was from... a clear white night. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
clear white night. It was a clear black moon. Phil Wilcox was on the street trying to consume a guest for the podcast. And I said, what's up? I need him over there to come and give me the heads up or something like that. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. We did, we did not prepare that, listeners. Not no, even we didn't. slightly. That was right up the top. Um, so uh, yeah, so 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 that's one. Who else would I like? Um, so I, I think one of the one of the things that's been missing for me this year is um, I, I, I want to explore getting more non HRE people on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, and in particular, then so that's kind of I guess in a way business leaders. So I've said from the start that I wanted to get. Um, practitioners, researchers, and business leaders on the podcast, and there are some, say, like Monica um, Parker from the last one, who is a business leader because she's a founder of her company Hatch, but she's also a practitioner, um, but she's also within kind of HR. She she would say she's not because she's in you know it's a human analytics and so on, but broadly yes. speaking, she's in HR. So I think uh, the only guest I would say that sort of fell outside of that camp so far was Ben Fletcher, who we had on episode three, I believe. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, finding more more people, um, and again, but again, I've, this is what I'm finding a challenge is is, fi- is finding business leaders that will openly talk with me about the role that emotion plays in their workplace because that isn't the narrative. Mm. That's just not the that's not the narrative around work. So I've, I kind of haven't answered your question in terms of uh, I've, I've answered it more in terms of type of guest. So mm. I'd like to get more um, more business leaders, more diversity. Uh, in 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 the guest pool that we have, whether that be by gender or, or other, um, and um, more uh, stories, more people um, who who are willing and able to um, to share their stories. And so, I, I wouldn't be much of a coach if I didn't ask you at least once what sort of things you're hoping to do to try and get that type of guest on board. What sort of strategies, options might you deploy? So um, I've got some time allocated away next week to go back and search through the mental health awareness um, tag from last week. Nice. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back through that feed and have a look um, if there are uh, any people on there that I think would be uh, you know, interesting guests to have on who've got interesting stories to tell whether that be personal stories or um you know doing interesting research or have got interesting areas in in the field um and yeah other, beyond that i don't know is is the short answer and I, I haven't i haven't thought about how to secure those people yet um, the the thought is i'd like to secure more of those mm. um but beyond making the request on this episode of the podcast and um, and then doing some searching that's about as far as my thinking has gone brilliant and of course if anyone's listening in and knows how we could start to make this happen please just get in touch I'm sure, I'm sure you yes absolutely yeah 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 please so either phil at emotion at work.co.uk or you can find me on twitter at phil wilcox so should we start to moving to, to wrap things up I'm gonna I've got some questions that you normally ask your guests at the end of the podcast yeah go on so, so I'm gonna yep. I'm going to throw them at you this time. So um, based on what we've talked about today or anything else that's in your sort of sphere of experience and uh, interest, what books, videos, talks would you recommend for people um, to, to find out a little bit more about what we've been talking about? Um, so if you're interested in face and you haven't done so already, then I would recommend you go back to episode 12 
Um, so that's me and Dawn Archer talking about um, impression management. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend going to search that out. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf and I'm like, oh god, which ones do I pick? So uh, so there's a there's a book by I think it's George Yule, um, which is called Pragmatics. So face is a is part of a broader um, linguistics and sociology discipline called pragmatics. Mm-hmm. Um, pragmatics is about how we make sense um, and meaning of um, interaction. So it covers more than face, but it gives a really nice. Um, if you're interested in what happens between. It gives you a really nice place to start in terms of the different ways that you can analyze and decode what happens between. Um, so the only thing I'd probably so it covers things like politeness, it covers things like imp so it covers things like politeness and impoliteness, it covers things like speech act theory, it covers things like um, face and face work, it covers things like uh, what else does it cover? Well that that's enough. So it, it's a really good it's a it's a good starter for ten. It's a short read, um, and it costs about six quid. I think it's not. It's, it's an accessible right. book. Um, if you if you're interested in face in particular, then um, you want to read work by Irving Goffman. Um, so uh, you could pick any one of his really. So you have got the presentation of self in everyday life. You've got um, the interaction ritual, which is another good one. Um, you've got forms of talk where he looks at the different types of talk that you have and then there's another one called frame analysis which is where he starts to introduce and look at framing so a lot of George Lakoff's work um, came from stemmed from Goffman Um, if you're interested in what happens within especially from an emotion angle then um, you could look at something like Emotions Revealed by Paul Ekman or you could look at um some work a couple of books by Antonio Damasio you could start there as well but he Damasio takes a very brain centred look um, at it so he kind of comes at it from a kind of a a neuroscience cognitive psychology angle um, whereas Ekman comes at it from a um, more of a psychology just a normal traditional psychology angle or um, if you're interested in identity and I've plugged this one before because I've introduced one of the authors to the podcast. So it's a book called Everyday Talk by Karen Tracy and Jessica Robles. Um, that's a really nice one Great as well. Fantastic. I, uh, just a very quick build on all of those. We At the start of the podcast, we were talking a bit about perception management. Um, I read a great book recently by an author called Bo Lotto. Um, okay. L-O-T-T-O. And it's called Deviate the science of seeing differently and it's all about um the psychology and biology of how we perceive the world around us really really um oh nice fascinating read and full of lovely kind of visual examples as well um for people who still appreciate picture books wonderful you'll have to send you'll have to send me a link so we can put that one in the show notes absolutely absolutely so as we um as we tie off I'm going to first off start by saying a huge congratulations. As one of your fair listeners from day one, um, well done on getting this far. Your 12, 12 months of podcasting glory 
is is something that <laughs> no one you. can take away from you and i know it's something that you know people have have really really enjoyed and appreciated listen to and have sparked off new ideas uh new conversations and fresh thinking so congratulations and thank you thank you um and is there anything else um, going on for you that you're thinking feeling or want to say before we close off um, so, so yeah, a couple of things. So, one is is a huge thank you to you for um, for agreeing to host today. Um, no so, uh, uh, I'm I'm very grateful for the for a your your hosting ability, but also the the, the prep and the work that you put in beforehand. So, um, I'm grateful for it. It's been a I've it's been yeah really good being on the other side actually for a change. It's been um, it's been nice. I feel like I've been a bit kind of shouty at times. But I don't know. If it's sure, why have I said shouty? I guess I'm, I'm not. I'm not used to advocating for so long. I've been very. I've been very advocacying today, and I'm. I'm not used to that on the podcast. I think because I, I normally take the inquiry mm. type. Um, if we were you know, to use some dialogic um, Isaacsy language, I'm norm- normally I'm the inquirer, whereas mm. today has been. Um, I've been the advocate. So um, it's been good, though. I've enjoyed it. Good. Good. Well, long may it continue. Maybe Thank we, you. Maybe we'll be back here again in twelve months' time. In twelve months' time, yeah, to your anniversary. Yeah, that'd be really good. Uh, well, I, I, I don't see any reason why not. So, you know, already in the can and and ready to go is uh, an episode that uh, maybe is actually a year overdue, which is me talking with a, a guy called Cliff Lansley, who's a long time kind of friend, business partner, uh, mentor. Where we we unpick some of the real core basic stuff around emotions. What are they? Where do they come from? How do they work? What is emotional intelligence? Is it even a thing? Um, mm. And so we, we unpick some of that real kind of core stuff. And then we've got Joe Stevenson. Uh, that, that episode is in the can. So Joe and I talk about um, emotion at work in emotional exploitation. Oh, wow. Which is a really, really interesting discussion. Um, yeah, I've got the uh, another one, as I said, lined up with, the, with my world's leading researcher in uh, emotion regulation. So... Um, so it, look, it looks like we're on a good start for another year so I'm um, yeah, looking forward to it fantastic alright well thank you very much Mark thank you for being uh, I, I'm going to take the reins off you and I'm going to close the show if that's alright so thank you very much Mark oh so if people want to find out more about you um, lovely Mark Gilroy how can they get in touch with you if they wanted to um, I am mostly on Twitter these days so you'll find me on Twitter at that Mark Gilroy um, I'm into all things uh, psychology, coaching, technology at work, leadership. I'm very partial to podcasts and also photography. And m- very recently became a dad for the first time. So at the moment, you'll find me tweeting at all bizarre hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, do not be, uh, yeah, do not address yourself. There's, there's, um, I'm, I'm doing okay. And um, I, I, I'm the managing director of a company called TMSDI. We uh, offer psychometrics for team development, uh, leadership, helping improve conversations at all levels. And you can find out a bit more about us at tmsdi.com. Fab, thank you. And you have a blog as well that you haven't plugged. Do you want to plug your, plug Ooh, your blog? I do indeed. It's um, So be- taking the photography um, approach, it's snap-leadership.com. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so that that's something that that, um, that one of the things I didn't mention earlier on um, about the podcast is that I've 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 really fallen out of love with writing, um, mm. which I know I'll have to change if I do a PhD, mind. But um, <laughs> what I, that, that's one of the things that I love most about the podcast is the um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's allowed me to get into really good discussions and do some really good thinking without me having to write it because I just get to, uh, I get to explore it. So, so thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for for hosting the the Emotional Work podcast for us um, for this episode, listeners. Thank you very much for your time. It's a it's another long one, so I think we're just about to top out an hour and forty. So. Um, Thank you very much for, for your attention. Thank you for listening. Um, if you'd be ever so kind, if you enjoy what you hear, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, it helps other people find us. And you can also follow us on iTunes or on Podbean or Stitcher or Overcast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. So thank you very much for taking your time to, to listen to the podcast today. Thank you, Mark, for coming on the podcast and being the host. My pleasure. And we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.